That's better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's really personified. Your clap is like your counter tenor voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, uh, welcome back to the episode. Um, to episode number five, we have now. How has it gone this long? I have no idea. But um, yeah, we're, we're we're reaching the end. No, <laughs> no, 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 plan, no, plan, no plans on stopping. That's all I would say. Um, um, five more years. Five, five more years. years. Actually, no, it's the British system, not the American. And ignore me. <laughs> <laughs> so we've uh, we've got a glorious guest on today. Hamish, he's perhaps one of the wisest people who's ever sat in front of a podcast. Grace, Grace, you music. made that assumption. Well. Actually, you weren't drunk. I was drunk. I don't know how you made that assumption. <laughs> well, we had dinner together, and Hamish it took me through basically the history of music. Really, if you are more interesting when you're drunk, we can always get some. Yeah. <laughs> or something. We get a, a, a can opening. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Which where we 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 did do last episode. Oh, the, the chap mm. did walk across basically the entirety of London to film, and we, we, with just a diet coke with him. It's yeah. all he brought, yeah. and we felt quite sorry for him. No, so we I gave him a few beers. He needs some electrolytes. He, he did need some <laughs> electrolytes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Hamish is a is a wonderful counter Um He studied at Royal Academy of Music, um, which is quite unfortunate, really. It's usually sort of symptomatic of someone who doesn't pass the RCM audition. Oh, that's a low blow. Yeah. Yeah. Just because I didn't pass, my ass is you are spot on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, he was at the Royal Academy of Music um, and now is hugely successful counter-tenor. Um, at least, <laughs> yeah. um, you sang at, sang at Limebourne? Well, I've, I've sung in a rehearsal venue. I, I covered there. And you there was there. a one piano dress rehearsal is the closest I've got to the stage. But um, the it was a thrill. Yeah, the dizzying lights of oh. the stage. My head was huge, yeah, yeah. but it has been for a while. Actually. <laughs> As a child, I remember it was subject to some discussion. Yeah, um... <laughs> a bit of worry from the parents. Wasn't yeah. It? yeah. Um, but yeah, we sort of. I had a. I had a dinner with Hamish relatively recently. We did a concert together at some guild somewhere. The Worshipful Company of Carpenters, I think it was. It's worshipful something, but yeah. yeah um, it was, I, I didn't spot a single carpenter in the room. They didn't look like carpenters anyway. Well, where were their toolkits? Exactly. Anything. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a huge disappointment. Um, and uh, we got chatting, and I realised that Hamish is, is reasonably, is quite clever. It's certainly cleverer than we are. <laughs> well, it's often... not, we're not very good at identifying what clever is, but when <laughs> it comes, that. To, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I think it, it hit Tom in the face that night. <laughs> it really, I sort of just mouth sort of slightly open as we we spoke about Bird and Talis and and all sorts. And I just thought today would be a good chance to talk about kind of history, politics within music. Um, We've recorded in a clip before, um, or an episode with a clip in it that went viral, which everyone will know. Haydn yes, is Hayden. useless. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hamish is going to be here and hopefully spend some time telling us why Haydn is not useless yeah. at all. So Hamish did mention before the podcast that he didn't necessarily agree with me. Go for it. I, I, it's more a case of uh, sympathy for Haydn. He gets overshadowed by Mozart so holistically. Agreed. And yet... It's often for slightly bizarre reasons, such as a sort of a top trumps comparison of, oh, but look at his symphonies versus the Jupiter symphony or something. Mm. And they're composed about 20, 30 years before, uh, particularly as operas. They're, they're a sort of a genre far closer to Gluck than they are to Marriage of Figaro. Yes. Um, and also I feel sorry for him because while he had an incredibly cushy job at the Esterhazy court, Princess Tarzi was a maniac who, I mean, he was um, sort of eccentric, but I'd love to be. But had too much money too little sense and was obsessed with the baritone, this sort of archaic instrument, right. and um, demanded that Haydn write over a hundred trios for this sort of dying medieval instrument throwback. Um, yeah. So I feel like he had his time slightly wasted by other people okay. in a way which Mozart potentially didn't. Right. Um, but also, didn't Haydn like 
do things more happily for money, whereas Mozart really wanted to move things forward. So he was like, I don't know, broke, but like kind of just doing his own thing, you know? I don't know about that. I mean, yes, Haydn played a good financial game because he found an employer and unlike Bach, he didn't fall out with him and then get thrown in prison by him and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, he did invent the symphony. I mean, he wasn't a static composer in mm. terms of um, his contribution to the canon, whatever that is. Um, I mean, I seriously say that. I mean, I know artillery, but yeah. I didn't study music. <laughs> yeah. I've, yeah. I've, I've, people sort of said in shocked tones at university, like, oh, no, we're looking at the canon. Yeah. And I'd be like, what, 12-pounder, 18-pounder? What are we talking here? But, yeah. It's the best um, type of canon. Oh, yeah. My dad was all artillery. Oh! So he, he's pretty au fait with canons. And big we should guns. get him on. We should get him on the podcast. We, we, we were thinking that we should get Ed and my dad on yeah, the podcast, really like spoof really episode. That. Yeah, but that would be a real, that would be a ride. The deep dive, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> into our past. Um, but yeah, so no. I already dragged it into military. Haydn, Haydn. Yeah, um, <laughs> there is a military story about him though, because when Napoleon took Vienna for the second time mm. in eighteen oh nine after the Battle of Wagram, um, very bloody affair. He sent a detachment of troops to go and make sure Haydn was safe in Vienna. And Haydn was an old man at this point. And um, they sort of scurried through the streets. They found his palace and they took him down the stairs. And one of the soldiers in this group began to sing an aria to him from one of his operas. And poor old Papa Haydn was sort of crying tears of joy. And it makes a change from, you know, Richard Strauss coming yeah. down the steps saying, don't shoot, I wrote Rosencavalier. Yeah. <laughs> um, or for, I think it was Berg who was shot by a sentry in 1945, went out for a smoke and got shot by a GI because he broke curfew. What oh, I think it was Berg. No. Um, yeah, I mean... Probably want to fact check that it's, after well, the it's, episode. It's, so. it's, it's a similar era, so it could be, yeah. Yeah, um, second Viennese school. But yeah, that's yeah, the Fred, that's the Fred. Vienna, yeah. Mm. Well, you, yeah, I mean, it's quite an arrogant response, isn't it? Really crying hearing somebody sing your, your piece. Oh, you really hate him. I do. Um, I, no, no, that's a lie. I don't <laughs> mind him. Find every I just, I, I think the creation is a good piece of music. And I did get a lot of abuse in the comments from this because people were like, you're a singer, how can you dislike the creation? So I think the creation's There was a cello great. concerto. It is a delicious got, The cello piece. concerto got a lot of mention. Um, well, like. It's a great piece. Oh, yeah. Why is it that Haydn wrote two cello concertos and Mozart didn't write one? That's kind of weird, isn't it? If Mozart was a bit later... That is a, it's a bit odd. Yeah, Hamish, why is it? Tell us. Tell us why. <laughs> yeah, as if Rabbit's you know. in the headlights. But like, yeah. what, what, what might you think? Like, We've got Google. I mean, off the top happen? of my head, I can't think of... Oh, there's the there's a horn concerto that Mozart wrote, and there's a violin... Mm, like a few. There's a, there's a very good... I think it's violin G major, I think. Yeah. It's very good. But otherwise, I only really know the piano concerto. I mean, that's mm. the other fascinating thing with Haydn's piano concerto. There's a beautiful Andrew Steyer, I think, recording of them, um, where it's the forte piano, of course. So it's mm. a much mellower... It's a different sound world. It's almost, right. um, it's almost like hearing a sort of a, a sort of muffled jazz piano right. playing something, and it's, yeah. it's it's a nice sound world. I quite like it. But then yeah. I, I do quite like um, the earlier classical period because that's sort of hybrid, late baroque. You know, the J.C. Bach, the C.P.E. Bach. That mm. kind of, it's still quite clean and astringent, but it has a lot of that sort of fugal qualities that you get in some Baroque yeah. writing, which is why I like Haydn's symphonies. And Symphony right. Number no. 44 has some excellent sort of fugal writing in it. Yeah, uh, you'll clean. probably have to guess I have not listened to Symphony Number no. 44. No, no, no. My opinion on Haydn was very much based on like... I mean, there are a lot of them, so fair enough. Are. I only happened to remember it's that one because I was chatting to a friend recently who conducted it and it made an impression on me. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, I like him. I yeah, like him. understandable. I mean, no, so Haydn was a very nationalistic composer, uh, in a way, of writing, writing in Austria. Um, I want to talk a bit about Shostakovich. Okay. 
Yeah. I want to talk a bit about Shostakovich because you you know your stuff about Shostakovich. I you, do love him. You do love Shostakovich. And a hugely contentious moment in history and obviously a very important one now with, with the bloody affair going on yeah. in Ukraine and, and Russia. Um, why was Shostakovich as contentious a figure as he was? For those who might not know. Well, he had to lead an incredibly guarded life. Um, I mean, he was a young child. He was just, I think, just starting at the... St. Petersburg Leningrad Conservatoire at the time when the um, Russian Revolution broke out. I mean, he was only about 11 or so when that, when that happened. And of course, under the terror, under Stalin, every member of the intelligentsia had to keep an incredibly low profile, very careful profile. I mean, for example, one of, um, one of the great figures of Soviet music from that period is a, a composer called Alexander Mosolov. And at the time, in the 1920s, he was considered by a lot of music critics to be the great shining beacon of where Russia was headed with its socialist music. He wrote this extraordinary piece called um, The Iron Foundry Concerto. I think it's just the Iron Foundry piece. And it's sort of industrial noise, and it's, it's, it's doing what Honegger did on industrial steroids. It's absolutely crazy. Wow. Okay. But he, in the Great Purge in the 1936 sort of period... Um, wrote a letter to Stalin complaining about the fact that he'd been essentially cancelled by the Soviet regime and he really should have been well grateful's the wrong word because you know it's all appalling crimes left right and centre but he really should have just kept his head down Mm. and he was so naive he wrote to Stalin to complain and then of course Stalin was like okay if you don't like being quietly shelved we can put you in a gulag somewhere and so he went to a gulag got out 20 years later a broken shell of a man, and his his later output is is bland, sycophantic, quite nervous, tremulous stuff. Yeah, venerating a regime, and, oh, and Shostakovich had to walk that line very carefully. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask exactly, like, how did he navigate that line between like, the political pressure and like his emotional kind of like influences on what he wanted to write? Well, he he navigated it very astutely but almost by good luck he was so he was too big to fail as it were mm. rather like when um Prokofiev decided for whatever deranged reason to return to russia i think he'd bought the kind of propaganda that it was a a new society and yeah. it was all going to be lovely um he got to the border with his wife and as they were passing through the border the nkvd the sort of precursors to the kgb and now the fsb um they opened his case and uh, rifled through his silk pajamas i think that was the yeah. and they were a bit sort of aghast at this decadence and um <laughs> confiscated his passport right in front of him wow and i think at that point he sort of turned to his wife ashen face and thought i've made a mistake yeah this is not what i expected yeah and so Prokofiev could be wrapped on the knuckles and he went from being the great shining figure the sort of the joy of Paris who everyone wanted at their salons Mm. to this sort of pet composer that the Soviet regime would threaten and wheel out when they wanted to and both Shostakovich and Prokofiev and Aram Kachurin and I find Kachurin quite a sad case because he was a of the three he was probably the most committed fervent communist he really believed in the system mm. but the system kept hitting him the system kept condemning his music and he would take that personally in a way which you know Prokofiev was a much more worldly cynical man who would just say look I just want to live just yeah. I mean tell yeah, me what to write yeah. and I'll write it and he was such a consummate craftsman he could do that yeah. and Shostakovich he is so contentious because on the face of it he he bent over backwards for the regime and mm-hmm. did whatever they told him to do but that's a surface level um, interpretation, and it's made 
easier to see him that way because he has such a sparse style of writing. He's not Prokofiev right. with his really lavish orchestrations. He writes quite spare pieces. Um, mm. Even his grand, grand symphonies, like the seventh or the tenth, they don't tend to be very thickly orchestrated. They're not Scriabin at any rate. Okay. Or even Mayakovsky, who's yeah. um, kind of he taught a lot of he taught Shostakovich. He was one of the great. He was called the father of the Soviet symphony. Okay. And he died in 1950, I think. Um, but right. it means that because there isn't a huge amount to latch on to, people can have in the past dismissed Shostakovich as facile, as okay. puerile writing, but it's not very sophisticated. Mm. And you, there is a, the ghost of an argument there because he had to change course radically in 1936 after his right. brilliant opera, Lady Bethard Sensk. Or oh, Lady Beth Metzensk of the something district, I forgot what it's called, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, had to be withdrawn because Stalin went to the opera theatre, into his box, and left at the interval, and then wrote a blistering condemnation of it, which yeah. has become very famous in um, Pravda the next day. Right. And Which uh, was along the lines of, this isn't suitable. Well, it just said this it's... Is- it's, um, it's subversive it's it's not what the people need it's not Mm. socialist realism and as a response Shostakovich had to withdraw his fourth symphony which is arguably one of his most fascinating because it's sort of toying with serialism it's it's a really avant-garde piece and it, it it drew down the curtain on a sort of a really vibrant part of his of his compositional output where he was pushing in all these directions he'd written the nose the only mm. large-scale successful surrealist opera i mean you, right. can, you can make a case for la mamelle de theresias by poulenc of course okay. which is an incredible piece yeah but the nose is um is unique there's nothing really like it or at least there's nothing really like it that has been successful and performed sure. around the world yeah, and yeah. he wrote the fifth symphony um as a artist response to just criticism is what he actually right. entitled it and uh, it was a radical change of tack. It was a okay. much more, con- on the surface, much more conventional, um, submissive piece to the Soviet authorities. Yeah, which was better received. It was much better received. It rehabilitated mm. him. Okay. But he was not safe, because in '47, I think, he suffered, um, uh, what's the term? He was condemned by Zhidanov, who was the commissar in charge of, of music, essentially, the mm. composer's union. And he had to, to do this sort of rehabilitating tour of the states alongside Prokofiev and Kachchurin, who'd also been condemned. Mm. And it was very difficult for pundits in the West to understand what was going on. I mean, this is a man who kept a packed bag with his belongings by the door yeah. for most of the 1930s because he was aware that the KGB could come crashing at yeah, any yeah. point and Walk drag him off. Door. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so who do you think he was inspired by then? You know, you said his teacher was. He, he was taught by Glazunov, yeah. um, and you can hear a lot of Glazunov in his first symphony. Mm. And he was taught also by Mayakovsky. He is, I think he put a lot of emphasis on Stravinsky and Mahler, and you okay. can hear a lot of Mahler in his symphonies. Right. It's rather like sort of, I don't know, it's, it's skeletal Picasso Mahler is what I would okay. call it. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, particularly the early stuff. Right. See, it's, it's fascinating you, you talk about him having a specific style, because I've heard a lot of his neoclassical stuff, which is obviously hugely different to his symphonic writing. Um, what, do you mean the Prokofiev neoclassical symphony, or...? Oh, maybe I do, actually. No, I, I'm sure I studied some some Shostakovich neoclassical stuff. Is oh, it? well, there's some neo-Baroque sort of stuff, where he does that, his preludes and fugues. Yes, it was certainly not symphonic. I was, I was talking about piano writing. Oh, OK, yeah, because that, that is um, extraordinary. I mean, I'm... I'm I, again, I... I just had to stress for the camera. I did not study music. This no. is uh, the history side of it all. Yeah, yeah. But as far as I'm aware, his set of preludes and fugues, 48 of them, 
are considered some of the most significant since Bach's yes. great cycle. Mm. And likewise, his late string quartets are considered, you know, the inheritors of Beethoven in a certain sense. Wow. Um, God, I've, I've signed some bold checks in my name now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's quite the... Goodness, I mean, that's that's most of that's gone totally, like, un, it's, that's off my radar. Well, um, it's, yeah. it's harder, it's much less accessible than the symphonies, and it's mm. not the jazz suites or the piano concerti, which are very famous. And in fairness, a lot of the... Um, he had this crazy scope for all different kind of writing. In that sense, yeah, he's not unlike Haydn. Um, oh, he covered yeah. a lot of bases. Yeah. Um, though actually, I would say his pupil, Mieczysław Weinberg, who's mm. an extraordinary Polish-Russian composer, um, is a 20th century Haydn. He wrote an outrageous number of symphonies. Okay. And operas. I mean, his, his oeuvre is, is vast, absolutely vast. Yeah, I mean, I, could, I reckon I could write an outrageous number of symphonies. The number of symphonies is not, it's not the... It's not the marker of quality. It's not a marker of quality. Yeah, 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 that's that's, that's what I'm saying. Right, that's true. Um, yeah. And as I said, I, I, could, I could write loads of symphonies, but um, I'm not <laughs> arguing... <laughs> that's going, that's going on the Instagram. Yeah, for um, sure, for sure. That's going to be, um, I think I saw your Baccarat. Oof, I'm not sure how symphony would turn out. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember the days of Baccarats? I did do them. Was that first year of stuff? Um, I mean, we, we do them every year, really. Oh, I remember no, doing it last go from Baccarats. No, I had to try and harmonise one in a kind of extracurricular class. Yeah. And I just sort of thought the more black notes on the page the better because my yeah. grade five theory was very much a rote learned exercise i didn't know what i was doing yeah, yeah so yeah, i think yeah. i created the kind of i don't know I mean, to call it drunk alfred schnitker after a stroke would be <laughs> still hugely insulting to yeah. alfred schnitker yeah. um, but it was bad it was objectively but, bad. Well, you were you weren't a chorister were you you were no i never sang as a well sorry I, I sang at school but i never sang as part of a yes yeah, for those who were choristers barcarals comes very naturally it's a very instinctive thing I came to Bach very late. Yeah. You came to Bach very late. <laughs> Which is ludicrous as a counter yeah. Was that your yeah. rebellious teenage phase? Um, no, people... my rebellious teenage phase was the Shostakovich Spanish songs, which I wow. think, uh, well, it, it was the only Russian cycle I could find that fitted in my range. So. Wow. Well, on the topic of Shostakovich, um, everyone knows him in relation to Stalin, like Soviet Union and like all of that, but how did his music evolve after um, that Stalinist period? Well, there was and... a bit of a thaw after, sorry, I cut in. No, no, no. Go. Yeah, <laughs> <that's> done. <laughs> Under Khrushchev, there was a slight relaxation of um, the strictures that all these composers were under, but it didn't stop a later um, round of, of sort of purges in 1979. I mean, people weren't killed, but they were cancelled. Their music was sort mm. of condemned, and that's what hit Alfred Schnitker and Sofia Gubaidulina and a bunch of Shostakovich's pupils. Shostakovich, by the latter half of his life, was was relatively untouchable within the Soviet regime as long as he didn't do something stupid. Yeah. So he wrote a piece called um, Antiformalaish Rayok, and you know this is someone who studied Russian to IGCSE, so that's an appalling transliteration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've actually only ever seen the transliteration, so that's my okay. that's my defence. Yeah, um, yeah, good defence. We'll, we'll allow it. We'll allow <laughs> it. And he also wrote this ludicrous, and I think I can hand on heart say that it is a is a bad piece of music, um, really? Cheromushki Moskva, but it has a very special place in my heart because. I once was able to sing a role in it, which was just totally unacceptable for a counter tenor to be allowed near there. They Good. should have hired a sniper or something. <laughs> but, um, it's, both those pieces are pretty hard-hitting uh, critiques of the Soviet system, the mm. economics. The, the Cheromushki Moskva plot is essentially about housing shortages in Moscow right. and how corrupt the apparatchiks are who manage the distribution right. of housing. Um, so he was able to write things that That's were self-mocking and okay. mocking of the Soviet state in a very gentle way. If he'd pushed right. it too far, he would have 
How do you think and that would go down in modern day Russia with Putin? How how much do you, do you think oh. the level of censorship is 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 higher today? I reckon it potentially is yeah. because I think the dissemination of information is so much more rapid that mm. Putin probably couldn't afford a figure of Shostakovich's stature um, undermining him. So Definitely. I think he would be if he was alive today, he'd be well advised to move abroad. Mm. Because I think that he might find a little bit of Nova chocolate being, you know, put in his dressing. Nova chocolate. I haven't heard that before. That's quite funny. It's actually not remotely funny. (laughs) Pretty awful. Yeah. To die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's really unlucky for that. Yeah. Uh, But what about the differences between Shostakovich and like Prokofiev? I think everyone kind of, well, people that haven't studied the history specifically, like would like to pile them up in even musical terms as well as being quite similar in the way they write and their outlooks. But what are some? Do you know of any like interesting differences in that outlook on Soviet Union, or just well, how think, would you categorize the difference in the way they write music in a way that me, me, people might understand listening who don't know the differences so well? I'm, I'm rubbish on theory and sort of the nuts and bolts of it, but my from an from an oral point of view or aural ear from an ear yeah. point of view, yeah. Um, I always get too confused. Yeah, yeah. Um, Prokofiev is half a generation older, so his his style. I mean, he was cutting his teeth almost pre-Russian revolution. So he was, you know, a big figure in, in Paris. His music is a lot more cosmopolitan in output, in outlook, mm. rather. Shostakovich's music, I tend to find potentially more academic, more kind of um, monastic in a way, because Prokofiev has so many influences on his style. And Shostakovich selects a few major influences, right. like Stravinsky and Mahler, um, mm. and is obviously... He, he's, he's very broadly read. He knows a lot of music. I mean, he quotes um, a lot of composers throughout his symphonies. The Seventh Symphony, the first movement, is, is quotes a lot of Lehar as yeah, a okay. mockery oh, of, um, yeah, of the Germans because uh, it was the Leningrad Symphony under yeah, siege. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know if you know this. Sorry, I'm going to buzz in quickly. We're doing a Merry Widow next term. Are oh, you? Oh, oh, music which I, I'd like to say we announced that before Glyndebourne did. Because Glyndebourne have just announced that they're doing it as well. Well, they're and clearly following college, yeah. yeah. As, as, as we spent our whole time updating the college website to yeah. find yeah. out. Hitting exactly. refresh, hitting yeah, refresh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's one guy who's like paid a good like five-figure salary to do that. <laughs> <laughs> sort of sat in an office somewhere, sort of obsessively chewing on his fingernails. Trying to find out what's going on. guessing what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, but is it going to be like, mm, mm, you yeah. guys did something extraordinary a few years ago. You did um, a Robinson Crusoe opera, didn't you? Did we? I think so. Not remember, during my time, and okay, I have well, been there it for was, a good few years. Okay, I, I, my friend, I think, was in it. It was a, it was a piece that hadn't been done for a long, long, long time. Okay, I'm pretty sure it was a Robinson Crusoe thing. Okay, um, but anyway, yeah. No, I, I think it was impressive. What? Yeah. Well, last, last term we did a piece called Barnum's Bird by Libby Larson, which we did the UK premiere of it, and it's basically the greatest showman as an opera. It's very um, cool to do premieres. It I was it was very yeah. cool, and like obviously there was no precedent. We were very much on our own with how we chose to sort of personify the characters and stuff. It's quite refreshing that where you don't have to look over your shoulder and listen to other people's interpretations. Definitely, yeah. Because I think I think a lot of people are hampered by that hugely, and, mm. and feel quite, you know, feel like there's big boots to fill. Um, yeah, I find it because the one piece that all council tenants have to do that's operatic in the 20th century, I say have to do it. It's, it's a joy to do it. It's an yeah. incredible, <laughs> yeah. incredible piece. Well, it's, some, it. some, Andrea yeah. Shaw's got a gun to your head. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, it would be the ghost of James, oh, poor James Berman, poor James such Berman. a legend, and yeah. Alfred Della, um, equally legendary, yeah. because they just embodied Oberon in Midsummer Night's Dreams. It's yeah. very difficult to sort of to tune out and create something truly original because 
whether you like it or not, it's a bit like Glenn Gould. Every pianist since him has been playing in his shadow. Yeah. Um, I mean, not in his shadow, but they've been influenced. Or Fischer Duskow, every leader singer since him yeah. has been influenced heavily by oh, his yeah. discography. They're the first person you listen to. Yeah, yeah. So um, they sort of get under your skin and you can't, and you don't want to excise them. But at the same time, there is a, a freedom to do something for the first time with no reference point. Definitely. I mean, I don't know how, how similar that is from an instrumental perspective. Um, are there, like, certainly with clarinet, are there particular sort of figureheads that you look to when you learn new repertoire? Yeah, no, of course, there would be. Uh, oh, what, like, people that play? Yeah, people that play. Yeah, of course there would be, but also I would find it pretty impossible to, like, do any kind of piece that I play, like a professional, you know what I mean? Yeah, because... All kinds of technical barriers and interpretation barriers I probably wouldn't want to cross, to be mm, honest. But, because yeah. the thing is, I, I, don't, I wouldn't know what the instrumental approach is, but with singers, we, we have the wonderful excuse of, I can never sound like him, so I've got a totally oh, different yeah. instrument. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, 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 I, could, I should be able to move my fingers as fast as X, Y, and Z, I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I interpret this uh, 30 beats per minute slower, and that works for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, if we, you were in East Germany, they'd have pills for that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, we, well, we have that, that great excuse that well, my, my voice does this, or my voice is tessiturous, it's more like this. Yeah. Um, it can be a trap for laziness, though. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, and such, that's why Ed and I started a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I <know>. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I was just say, I spent sort of four years being like, oh, no, I'm a high countertenor, I only sing high. Yeah. And then realised, no, I'm just a bad countertenor yeah. <laughs> for technique. But yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, don't say that to me. That's kind of where I am at the moment. Just the other way around. I'm, I'm a low tenor. It's well, coming, it's coming. We'll right? meet in the middle. Yeah, yeah we'll yeah. meet in the middle. You can give me your top notes and I'll give you my low notes. How about that? We'll agree on that. Oh, I need um, them now. I need them. You need them. You certainly do. Yeah, yeah. Um, Going along, I mean, this is a huge change of topic, but talking about people who toe the line very carefully between their artistic motive and their sort of political motive and what's required of them. Um, let's go back about 500 years. It's a conversation that we have sort of vaguely touched upon. Uh, but let's talk about Thomas Tallis, William Byrd, um, the Reformation of, you know, of, is it the Reformation of, what is it, the monarchy? No, it's not the monarchy, of the Protestantism, Catholicism. Well, it's the reformation of the sort of broader Christian church. Of, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And um, and how those composers were required to write in a certain way and how it was forced upon them. Again, brief overview. I don't know if Ed knows much about 16th century choral music. No, I know. Exactly. I'm just going to leave you guys to go at this mm. one for... Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> what happened? I think, to draw it back to what we were talking about earlier, it's, it's a funny case because if we liken birds to Shostakovich and Talis to Prokofiev, because Talis in this scenario is akin to Prokofiev in the mm. sense that he is a slightly older one, he's yeah. the un, unrivaled um, technician, as it were, has been incredibly experienced by the time Reformation yeah. actually breaks out, because um, he was in his 30s when, when Henry VIII um, reformed the Church of England. Mm. Um, I flip my allegiances. I actually prefer Talis to Bird. You which do, would, and we had this conversation because I much prefer Bird. I think Bird's yeah. music is, is it's, far it's, more... It's not like I dislike Prokofiev or I dislike Bird. Sure. It's just a mild preference for mm. Talis over Bird and Shostakovich over Prokofiev. Yeah. Um, and I think that Bird is the more interesting character historically. Certainly. Because he is a recusant Catholic who's mm. you know, ostentatiously going to take up a post in Lincoln Cathedral to demonstrate that, oh no, I'm, I'm in the Church of England, I'm yep. writing these grandiose anthems for large-scale forces which yep. demonstrate the Elizabethan reforms and all that kind of stuff. Um, and of course, we all know sort of pieces like Vigilate, which are designed for, you know, almost crammed into a priest Absolutely. hole in the north of England, mm. looking over your shoulder. I mean, he lived through appallingly 
bloody times to be an English Catholic. We have the rebellion of the Northern Earls mm-hmm. and obviously the Armada and yep. all that kind of the xenophobia that that but, whipped up. But because of his success, he was pardoned and he was, he yeah, was kind it, of almost allowed to write the music that he wanted to write. Yeah, yeah. He found a, an accommodating middle ground with the court. Um, I also think that Elizabeth was no fanatic. I don't actually think any of the Tudor monarchs were fanatical about religion because while Henry VIII gets the title Defender of the Faith, obviously he throws that aside in order to secure the succession to marry. Oh yeah, I mean um, it was, his motive was, was was basically purely. I don't want to say sexual, well, lustful but and was, dynastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean Absolutely. I think he is one of the most destructive kings in British history because mm-hmm. you can trace the English Civil War in the 1640s back a hundred years to his economic mismanagement and all wow. his successes in the Tudor dynasty and the first two Stuarts are grappling with the fundamental problems that he left them. Wow. Um, it's, Does that have anything to do with what he did with the church or was it just more? Well, the church was also a cash grab. Mm. So he he was influenced into the rupture with Rome, partly because he always perennially overspent. He was financially incontinent. He built incredible palaces, like yeah. Nonsuch Palace, which sadly um, was knocked down, uh, I think, by Charles II, which, yeah. until I knew about that, I quite liked Charles II, but it's just yeah. vandalism yeah, on a huge scale. Could you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, no one think of the palaces. <laughs> you say you quite yeah. like um, Charles II. You know, did you have a sort of Oh, I think he's cool. He's, he's a bit like Bird. He's, yeah. he's a sort of quiet recusant. Okay. Um, I think he had a deathbed open conversion to Catholicism. Right. And I just I feel sorry for them because while I'm fairly agnostic and Anglican, mm. they were living in such bigoted times. Okay. And they had to wade uphill against the most absurd vitriol. Yeah. Um, I mean, the English Civil War I find bonkers because Charles I is a staunch Protestant. Right. But it is essentially a war of religion. It's, it's you know, people, the Whig history, the weak historians in the subsequent centuries tended to um, portray it as this big fight between the monarchy and parliament and like, where does sovereignty lie? But really, it was a bunch of bigoted um, gentry in East Anglia with people like Cromwell, who had a sort of born-again conversion when he um, was probably starved in the fields and overworked because he was sort of slipping from gentry status into genteel poverty. And... um, they tried to take Charles I's children away from Henrietta Maria, his wife, mm. because she was a French Catholic. I was, I was actually going to ask you, I say, I say that and I'm about to ask you something politically. I, I was going to say, how much of this censorship and how much of... of or bird censorship. Or, sure, bird censorship, but, but Shostakovich, of anything. Yeah. How, how much freedom do you think composers these days have when writing? Do we have as much freedom as we've ever had? Um, I don't know. I think that at least with Bird and with Shostakovich, they could look at quite clear guidelines, Mm. or even if they were inferred, they could chat to people in government and work out what was going to get them in hot water and what wasn't. Nowadays, because the censorship is kind of democratic it's quite hard to predict which way the wind will turn and whether, you know, an opera you wrote about um, domestic violence, you know, for example, um, oh, George Benjamin's incredible Written on Skin. That has been a huge success Mm -hmm. and it is an incredible piece, but it's undeniably uncomfortable. Yeah, there was another one, I don't know if you, did you see Blue? It was an opera, it was premiered in America and it's about 
police brutality. Oh, interesting. Okay, um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I must have. I haven't watched. It. I know the ENO recently did it as a, as a UK premiere. Yeah, and it went down amazingly well. But yeah, again, mm. very uncomfortable. But in ten years, God knows. It's it's very difficult to safeguard your legacy when nothing is sort of undeniably kosher. Sure. Things shift and change. Absolutely. Um, can you can you separate the music from its political motive? It depends. It's an, it's also quite interesting to see to flip that around and look at old 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 operas. Yeah. Given a veneer of modern politics. Mm. Um, yeah, I because mean, obviously at the time when La Traviata was premiered, it wasn't allowed to be because it, it really wrote it for the current time mm. he, he wrote that this was going to be set and they said no you can't do that you have to set it I, did, I don't know anything about that yeah, that's so interesting they said yeah. you have to set this 100 years ago because basically they deny they, uh, they, they were denying that courtesans still exist they were yeah. like, we can't we can't admit that this stuff's still happening oh so um, it's sort of prudishness that came absolutely. through absolutely yeah. they, they were like oh you have to write this as if it was 100 years ago mm. well of course Mozart had all his run-ins mm. with attempting to satirise modern you know ancien regime society yeah. with Marriage of Figaro um, yeah yeah Oh, that is, I didn't know that about Verdi. That's, that's, I like the neurotic Resurgimento Italian state. Yeah, I've, I've, I've taught him one thing. You know, we were 10 nil, 10 nil down in the Champions League playoff. Which one? Uh, this, 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 uh, this conversation, and we've just got the 90-minute consolation goal with my, with my fact about Traviato. It's going to go down in history. It's the greatest moment of my life, I think. Um, the Verdi I'd love to see is the masked ball, because that's all about one of the assassination and, well, the assassination of the last... Vasa King in Sweden. Okay. Yeah, I know um, it vaguely. It's got great music as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, he writes beautifully. It's just, I get slightly bored of Bel Canto. I love the slightly later stuff like Puccini, which can yes. be a glorious fever dream. Yeah. Or much earlier with kind of Vinci and Pergolesi and even earlier Monteverdi. Definitely. Monteverdi's yeah. glorious. Yeah. Uh, have you ever sung any Puccini? The only Puccini that I'm ever likely to sing, and likely inverted commas, is yeah. the shepherdess, not the shepherdess, the shepherd piper, the boy, okay. in Tosca, which is also one of my favourite operas. Yeah. I would actively... It's not the biggest role, that. It's, it's not. It's a shame that that's... But it's all that's... I can take. I mean, yeah. I, I would actively pay money to do that. Um, but I've, I've seen it a lot recently. Uh, and again, we're going to go into sort of quite opera talk, which... which yeah, uh, Ed will just pass the baton over, I think. Um, I saw recently, I think it might have been a Don Giovanni being advertised on some, you know, one of these like London group chats that are like, yeah, looking for yeah. singers. And it was a gender swapped one. So they wanted Ooh, a tenor funky. for Donna Elvira. And this is being done more, like, more and more often. It's happening a lot now. I would, yeah, I that agree. would be fascinating to see, actually, because that would totally invert all of the power player and the character dynamics. Absolutely. I think they were, try- they were, they were turning it into a sort of same sex relationship. Yeah, and turning Don Giovanni into, I mean, it never, I don't think it ever specifically stated that he only slept with women. But that's certainly the impression. I mean, he's modelled was... loosely on Casanova, and I think he was pretty explorative. Sure, um, absolutely. So, so, so I think that's kind of it's kind of exploring that a bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think maybe maybe there's a Rodolfo role in there somewhere for you, where Rodolfo goes back five hundred years to a sort of Handelian. It would be fun to slot some pastiche, yeah. I'm so sad. I was once in Vienna um, when I was at music college, and I I was going through there with my then girlfriend, now wife, and it's the first time she'd been to Vienna. So I was in that time in my life. I love it. It's an incredible city. Yeah, yeah. Um, And we we had tickets, standing tickets, to go to the Volksoper to see um, Don Giovanni. Wow. And based on what I could see on online. 
it was set in Star Wars. They had lightsabers and everything. <laughs> it was so cool. Yeah. And I got, oh, you were a fan of that, were you? I just was absolutely hysterical. Yeah. It was I would love that. It was going to be, know, in, oh, gonna be in German with German subtitles. So, I mean, I wouldn't have understood anything. <laughs> but there's a lightsaber. But it's got lightsabers <laughs> yeah. and capes. And I think I enjoy operas that are set more in the modern world, though. I went to see Il Turco Italia mm. um, at Glyndebourne last I year. I saw that. I was very kindly taken by a friend who was assisting, so I got one of the sort of dress rehearsal tickets. Right. Yeah. It was and amazing. Was that what at Glyndebourne? Maybe you were at the same time. Or no. We possibly were at the same time. Because so um, that was when they staged it so cleverly to get around the distancing because of COVID restrictions. Yeah. 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 What it was, was amazing. the twist? It was in a writer's oh, it was, mind. Yeah. It was, yeah. Oh. It was very That's cleverly done because that sounds quite pretentious, but yeah. they made it work superbly. Like it, it just gelled. You it's a bit like yeah. a fantastically brilliant film, Jurassic World Dominion. No, hang on, what was the first of the of the launched? Um, this is highly satirical. Yeah, um, <laughs> oh, man. yeah. The, the first, first of the Chris Pratt ones. The first of the Chris Pratt the Fallen ones. Kingdom or something? No, no it was that the like second one, I think. Oh. Um, <laughs> I managed to pour an entire gin and tonic over my laptop at university while watching this first one. As we all do. So it was a very expensive film for me to watch. I did send a message to Tom, you're like, interested in dinosaurs and stuff. Oh god, we've drifted into it, haven't we? Oh, here we are, that's perfect. In that that film, there's the poor um, uh, intern who has to look after her someone's children. And then she totally unnecessarily gets absolutely... The Lost World? No. No, that's a different. Sorry. That's a different book. That's a totally different. That's not even Michael Crichton. No, anyway, no. Um, <laughs> she gets absolutely mullered by a mosasaurus. Yeah, unnecessarily. First of all, she gets picked up by what I presume is their attempt at a um, Quetzalcoatlus, <laughs> and then she gets sort of dragged over the sort of the big fishing pen. Yeah, and then the mosasaur, the Tylosaurus, or whatever it is, goes bursting out through and chomps her. And you just sort of think, well, that was an unnecessarily violent death. And I think a lot of the critics <laughs> yeah. were like, she did nothing. Why? Why did, That was just shock value. Yeah. So that was my one criticism of the Epimestra was this slightly gauche uh, ending to this comic right. character. But otherwise, I thought it was really powerful because it also showed a, a sort of wealthy Gulf state falling into chaos. So yeah, it could yeah. have been Libya or right. somewhere like that. It was wow. very powerful. I can imagine. There's all, they use this a lot in films, don't they? Where you're, where, like, you, I, this is all the time in Star Wars, where you shoot a stormtrooper, you could be shooting them on, like, the toenail, and they, they're, yeah. they're dead. They're on the floor, they're dead. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you shoot Luke Skywalker in the heart, and he's on the floor, and it's like, I'm going to be okay. It's I have like, a timeout, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. whereas, you yeah. know, these stormtroopers are actually wearing some form of armour. Oh, I feel so sorry for them. They've been upsold that armour. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. They've been, dro- they've been dropshipped that armour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything it makes them more vulnerable. Yeah, because yeah. it, it slows them down, gets rid of their vision, yeah, yeah and yeah, kills exactly. them super quickly. Yeah, because apparently they they shot, they just die. <laughs> no, it just happens it's all the time. It's just a bolt equally all yeah. over. There's <laughs> gaps in all the places where it matters for the armor. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, Hamish, we we went there. What's the obsession with dinosaurs? Yes, we have to go back. It's like Hobbs, really. It's just, you know, did, were you not obsessed with dinosaurs as a child? I wouldn't have said obsessed. I but mean, even if I was obsessed, I wouldn't have grown up and remembered that obsession. So what has stayed in your mind with this sort of interest? I think I just really loved walking with dinosaurs. So every time I was sick as a, you, um, oh, okay. as a child, mm. I would just... Um, I wasn't chronically sick, you know, just every time I had flu or something. <laughs> yeah. um, I, <laughs> I would just whack on um, uh, walking with dinosaurs and just sort of sit there on the sofa wrapped up watching this it's still okay. the test of time I must admit I've never heard of this I, mean, I love Ratatouille it's one of the most rats. famous BBC yeah. documentaries it's good logic um, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. so that is a loan word um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I don't know. It. I just think they're cool. I think it's um, just some of the... It's also the, the ability to discover something out there which has lain hidden in rock for sure. millions of years. It's a bit like with music when... You know, obviously the canon are all fantastic composers, but yeah. I get more interested in the slightly more obscure composers who kind of never had seen the light of day or right. have only seen the light of day in their hometowns. So people like um, Franciszek Tuma in Prague, who's okay. a beautiful high baroque composer right. and basically unknown outside of Czechia. I was going to say, I've never heard of him. He's delightful, absolutely okay. delightful. But it's people like that. And, with, mm. and you get a hint of that with dinosaurs where every year there will be kind of eight or nine groundbreaking studies mm. showing that we were totally wrong. And, you yeah. know, huge Anstarchid pterosaurs didn't have to sort of waddle into the wind like a modern-day albatross. Yeah. But they could <laughs> catapult themselves into the air using a sort of complex grasshopper-like motion wow, yeah, of yeah. their extended... Because their entire wings are just like their pinkies mm. extended in this very long, graceful bone structure. Yeah. Anyway, I'm yeah. getting off topic. But no, this is amazing. it's, this it's is just... It. A hugely rich seam of we don't know what the hell we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, and even yeah. before the dinosaurs, you find these stem mammals who are extraordinary, called um, one of the most very famous one of the the Permian reptile or semi reptiles. So this is the thing: they're not reptiles, they're not mammals, they're something in between. They're called stem mammals now. Okay. Um, and I'm vamping because I've forgotten what they're bloody well called. Uh, Dimetrodon. Dimetrodon is okay. a famous. Yeah, we one. won't be able to help you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, Come on, just on the tip of my tongue. I'm gonna finish the sentence. I can't. And Gorgonopsid yeah, yeah. is another one. And they were kind of. They look like giant saber-toothed um, kind of rats really oh wow and they actually had um slightly fatty deposit they think on their sort yeah. of outsides and no, we have lots those of at, hairy filaments we have those at the world college of music we call them bassoonists <laughs> 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 that's such a low blow. oh i love that's sorry cool. yeah. the bassoon though um luckily my flatmate's not back tchaikovsky's fourth symphony middle movement the woodwind okay. the bassoon writing in that is exquisite okay so i just want to drag it back to music but that, but that, that, yeah. that requires there to be a nice bassoon sound and i i'm, I'm yet, again yet to find one I want. I'm okay. not a fan. Yeah. The closest I've I realise I'm in the bassoon. presence of the clarinetist, but I have yeah. to admit I've always preferred the oboe and the bassoon. Partly because oh, there's that slight hint of more danger. Bro- bro- there's a more sort of brock sound that you might yeah. be more familiar with. Uh, I it's really, a stereotype. It's I'm really, playing up to my your really counter tenor kind of tendencies. Uh, that's true. I have a lot of really counter tenor tendencies, but I, um... <laughs> that sounds so harsh. Yeah, <laughs> the counter tenor voice is is typical. Now I think that is why I like. I mean, one of my favorite. This is on thin ice here, but one of my favorite counter tenors is um, Robin Blaze. Right. And he has such a beautifully crystalline sound. Okay. Well, I think the clarinet can have this beautiful, um, slightly impressionistic kind of kind of sound around yeah. it, the air oh, around yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and it's beautiful. I mean, to just balance things out alongside yeah. the Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich yeah, just, just is six. into the windows <laughs> of your soul. Yeah, Shostakovich yeah, yeah. Six keep symphony. talking. <laughs> the middle yeah. movement of the Shostakovich Sixth Symphony has the most exquisite clarinet writing. So mm-hmm. it works in different. Eras. Is that the really is that the fast one? That, uh, blah, 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 yes. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Has beautiful cascades. I'm gonna play that on bass clarinet sometimes, which is not fun at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't designed for that kind of thing. Yeah. I was gonna ask, what do you, what do you think is going to be the future of contemporary music? Do you oh, know what I mean? Wow. Because because I find there's like a comparison. I've got a lot of friends that like in art world, for example, mm. contemporary arts like still got so many different like shades to it. Anyone can go into like a gallery like the Met and just like see things that they might not know, but they can see like huge differences yeah. in what's still considered contemporary. But when people go and listen to contemporary music, a lot of the time they'll come out and they'll be like, 
that sounds the same as this or this or this, which is all contemporary music. I want to quickly chime in with very basic knowledge because mm-hmm. I'm sure you'll you'll have have an answer that's far more refined than mine. But um, I saw I saw something uh, on Instagram. Here we go. It's because everything on Instagram is, is true. This is where this guy gets. Why don't you watch YouTube shorts like the rest of us? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Um, but I saw something that was like an AI predicts the future of art. Um, okay. And AI, the way it predicted it was that it predicted that art was going to become more and more mathematical. I thought about saying edible, but okay. Um. Edible. Well, I, don't know. I, I would be a staunch. Everything is cake. I support. I support Have you that. Seen that? Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> can we can we cut into it at the end and just check? Yeah, it's yeah. delicious now. Oh god. Because <laughs> <laughs> I no, welcome right. to dissonance, the cannibalistic uh, yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, it predicted that the future of art was was very mathematical and very based on. And actually, you can see a lot of that in tattooing these days. They had that in the sixties, don't you? Calligraphy. Yeah, but I, but I guess you could argue that it's going going to go more down that line. Um, yeah, I mean, goodness, I, I feel like this is good a place to, to end the episode, is any really? Yeah, we, we, we sometimes we sometimes fractured music. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, <laughs> it's, it's a, amazing. No, a very depressing. Every episode should start with music and end with dinosaurs. I think. Oh yeah, or end no, with, it's, it's or the regression sorts. back to yeah, exactly. Absolutely. As, no, as exactly. they should. Yeah, yeah. As, as him, you would have noticed we don't have a formal end to this episode. What what sort of usually happens is James just sort of cuts the mic off <laughs> when when Ed and I sort of start rambling too. No, much. when James feels like it, he goes. <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's like I've decided that's enough. Yeah. This week. <laughs> um, but we'll very briefly say thank you so much to him. No, a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very much. He's, amazing. he's awesome. trekked across from an, uh, an audition at Garsington to come and well, record. It wasn't at Garsington, but... Um, well, audition for Garsington. I don't drive, so I'd be arriving about four days if it was in Garsington. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. That's, that's true, yeah. Um, um, but he's trekked across to come and do this for us, and we're hugely grateful. No, um, it's we'll a pleasure. We'll be back in a second episode and we, soon, we absolutely this was will amazing. Be. And we oh, feel like we haven't you. even scraped the surface. Yeah, we're going to... Well, we'll, I know so... I have so much more love for battleships and tanks to give. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe... We were hoping for the love that relates to, you know, yeah. Something slightly less murderous. When we get the Patreon content up, uh, the paid content oh, <laughs> talking yeah. about battleships yeah. and the after party the exactly. after party exactly Amazing. anyway yeah on that note thank you very much Hamish and thank you thanks very much thanks so much thank you thanks